don't it feel like the news cycle is speeding up like all the time all the time right like just this week Steve King, congressman from Iowa, got rebuked by his fellow Republicans for making racist statements. In another story, a federal judge ruled that the Trump administration cannot put a question about citizenship status on the 2020 census. That's just this week, right? So if you want to stay up on all this news that's happening all the time on race and identity, you should subscribe to the Code Switch newsletter. You can do that by going to npr.org slash newsletter slash Code Switch. What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. Shireen is back next week. This week, though, we're turning the episode over to the very dope folks at Nancy. And if y'all don't know Nancy, first of all, get your life and fix that immediately. Nancy is a podcast from WMYC that focuses on the stories of queer people. And it's about how people define themselves and how they arrive at those definitions. So obviously, like a lot of overlap between what they do and what we do at Code Switch. Anyway, it's hosted by the wonderful Kathy Tu and Tobin Lowe. In this episode you're about to hear, Tobin tells a story that ran on Nancy back in the fall. It's about his friend Jason and Jason's family. When they moved to the U.S. from Korea, Jason's father changed drastically. And where Jason and his father were once close, they started to drift apart, even more so after Jason came out. And that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Besides that it's a story about parents and their hopes and dreams for their children and their children's guilt about those hopes and dreams. And if you are a person who is inclined to crying, y'all know who you are, you really probably want to have a tissue handy. And with that, here's Kathy and Tobin. So, Kathy, mm-hmm. I want to tell you about my friend. His name is Jason. If you were a real housewife, what would your tagline be when they introduced you? This is the most difficult question I've ever been asked. Jason's in his early 30s. He's a writer. He's written for shows like Girls and Barry on HBO. He's also a playwright. Are you still thinking about it? I don't know. I'm freaking out. He's also just one of those people who has a great laugh. (laughs) God, I love that. (laughs) It's a good laugh. Yeah. And I think his laugh, which is so open and expressive, tells you a lot about him. Because Jason is all of those things. He's not afraid to tell you what he thinks. He gets really animated if he's passionate about something. Which is why I was so surprised when he told me about his relationship with his dad. Because with his dad, he's like a different person. And the reason why dates back to when Jason was a kid. Back when his family lived in Korea, where his dad was a successful business owner, and he and Jason were almost inseparable. My dad, growing up, was always my favorite person. He was an architect and had his own construction company in Korea, and so he would come home with a bag of ice cream, and I would hear his footsteps and the rustling of the plastic bag as he was walking down the hall, and I would get so excited, and I would jump out of the couch and run towards the front door and grab his neck and and swing around him, You know, he was my number one guy. When Jason was in elementary school, his dad decided to move the family to the U.S. And that's when Jason started to notice a change in his dad. He, I think, had been a little depressed because of immigrating, and he became quieter, and it became very difficult to access him. As time went on, he became even more removed— And maybe the most noticeable difference, he started speaking less and less. Jason says that at a certain point, his dad stopped talking altogether. 
And the guy who used to be the jovial, successful businessman coming home with a bag of ice cream disappeared. His dad is kind of a mystery to him now. Their relationship is completely different. And Jason has hard evidence to prove it. You know how when you go into your phone and you click a person's contact information, Mm -hmm. it shows you the last handful of calls that you've had with one another? Yep. I did that once with my dad, and we had like nine phone calls in the past three, four months, and they were all under a minute long. And I guarantee that most of those phone calls were spent with him asking about the weather in New York and me asking about his car. So in a lot of ways, when Jason got a call from his dad about three years ago, it started out like any other. How's the weather? How's the car? But then Jason's dad dropped a bomb. He said, I'm having issues with my Xinjiang which is Korean for kidney. And I was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then he clarified, I have kidney failure. Only 10% of my kidney is working. Suddenly, it's not the usual talk. Jason starts asking questions. Details begin to emerge. It turns out his dad had to go on daily dialysis. He was having trouble walking. He had a rare blood type that made it harder to find a kidney donor. And maybe the most distressing detail of all. He had been ill for quite some time, for the last year and a half, two years. And he had not said a single word. Neither had Jason's mom. His parents had been trying to handle everything on their own. And for a while, it had been an easy thing to keep from Jason. He was only home for a couple days here and there at the holidays, and the symptoms of his dad's disease hadn't been bad enough to be visible. But now things had gotten to a point where they couldn't hide it anymore, and his parents don't speak very much English, so they needed help managing the treatment. That's when Jason's dad finally made the call to his only son. Jason hangs up the phone, and he's just stunned. On top of not knowing about his father's illness, he realizes he doesn't know anything about kidney failure, period. And so, he gets to studying. He starts learning about finding an organ donor, how transplant surgery works. And eventually, he calls up his own doctor and says, I want to get tested to see if I'm a match. So he starts the long process. Getting blood work, filling out forms. And urine tests. So you have to pee into a plastic container for 24 hours. So I remember having to carry the bags (laughs) on the two train and thinking, oh, wow, this is my life. I'm carrying around my own pee on the two train during rush hour. And that is the most disgusting thing I've ever done. And I hope that no one notices. To be fair, it probably wasn't the most disgusting thing on that two train. (laughs) You're probably right. After months of waiting, he gets a call from his doctor who tells him that I am almost a perfect match to donate my kidney. Suddenly, everything was different. The situation went from, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I was a match, to, oh, I can save my father's life. So I remember receiving this news And shaking. And I picked up my phone and I called my dad. 
what my mom picked up. And I said, I'm a match. Mom, I'm a match. Dad's going to be fine. And she started hysterically crying. And then she handed the phone to my dad. And he listened to the news, and he got very, very quiet. And then he said, okay. Now, okay can mean a lot of things. Okay, this is a lot of information to process. Okay, great. I'm so grateful that you're a match. Give me your kidney. Okay, what do we do now? But what Jason came to realize is that when his dad said okay, what he really meant was no. No way am I taking your kidney. And we're not talking about him saying no one time. The last year and a half of my life has been me trying to convince my dad to take my kidney. And it happens everywhere. We'll be out eating ramen, and I'll be like, so about this kidney, Dad, what do you think? We'll be walking down the street, and I'll say, so you know that I could still give you my kidney, right? And at this point, it feels like I'm doing an ongoing bit. And always the answer is no. I never know why. And he won't say. Sometimes he sits his dad down, looks him in the eye, and really pleads his case that taking his kidney is the only option. He talks about a time when his dad came to see a performance of one of his plays. The next morning at breakfast, Jason brought up the kidney. I said to him, don't you want to see more of my plays? Don't you want to see my grandchildren? I want you to be there the day that I get married. I want to give you that. And he took that in, and he nodded, and he didn't say anything else. Jason has spent years trying to make sense of what seems like a backward situation. Son offers kidney, dad says no, and on top of it all, his mom refuses to take sides. It makes Jason feel like the real reason his dad says no, the something everyone is refusing to talk about, is really, really bad. And he has a theory on what that real reason is. The ongoing narrative in my head is that since the day that I came out, I can't do anything right, including donating an organ. When did you come out to him? There was never a press release, but when I was a teenager watching a movie dubbed over in Korean, I think it was Hot Shots or some terrible movie, and there was a scene where Charlie Sheen was having sex in a limousine, and... Obviously, the whole thing was shot to reveal and focus on the woman in the scene, and she was, like, wearing this slinky dress and had this, in my imagination, she's wearing white fur and is very sexy and has blonde hair, and I could only pay attention to Charlie Sheen. And I remember watching that and pointing that out to him and saying, oh, Charlie Sheen's very handsome. (laughs) And I think I was, like, seven years old or something. Jason remembers this as the moment both he and his dad realized he might be gay. And a couple years later, when he was a teenager, Jason felt sure. When I told myself and realized that I'm gay, I remember sitting in my car in St. Louis and hysterically crying. And at the time, I didn't know what I was crying about. But looking back, I think it's that my... Dad always said I was his perfect son, and I knew in that moment 
that I was no longer his perfect son. And that was crushing to me. He told his parents he thought he was attracted to boys. They did not take him seriously. They assumed it was a phase, so they refused to talk about it, or they would change the subject if it came up. They basically took Jason's gayness. And then buried under the rug is almost too soft a term. They, they dug a hole in the ground to subterranean earth and shoved that information in there and refused to acknowledge it. But when he went off to college, his identity became impossible to ignore. His sophomore year, he had a medical emergency and passed out. He woke up in a hospital bed with his mom standing by his side. She had flown to New York. At first, he was relieved. And then he was horrified. I remember thinking, oh, this is bad. And then we went back to my dorm, and on my dorm, there were just posters of all these men that I was in love with. And I remember she looked at the wall and looked at me and looked at the wall and looked at me. And I think she realized then, like, oh, he's not kidding. This is real. Jason felt like he had become so many things his parents did not want. Gay instead of straight, a writer instead of a doctor or a lawyer. And all of it had been easy for his parents to just not think about. But he knew in that moment that his mother would go home and tell his dad what happened, what she had seen. From there, it felt like his father's silence changed from a quirk into a sign of deep disapproval. Calls to the house became shorter, less frequent. He visited home less often. And thinking about all those years of silence, it adds up to one conclusion. The fact that he has a lifeline that he won't take, I wonder if that means in his head that my kidney represents all the bad things he sees in his son. And he's worried that by receiving it, he'll become bad. When I think about my dad, I think of a man who's lived his life in two parts. The first part as a successful, gregarious, lively businessman and father in Korea. And then the second part as a struggling, quiet, sick immigrant in the United States. And in my mind, I feel very much responsible for that second part. You, you blame yourself for the second part. I do. Can I just ask it? I know this is a loaded question, but I mean, hearing you talk about how much you blame yourself for this sort of second part of his life where he's been sick, is there a part of you that feels like giving him a kidney, essentially saving his life, is your way of atoning for this second part of his life that you blame yourself for? Completely. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I do. I think there is a part of me that thinks my dad made tremendous sacrifices for me so that I could have the life that I have. And now that he's older and I am the adult, it is time for me to make the same kinds of sacrifices. Have, have you thought about losing your dad? Yeah, I have. I've thought a lot about losing my dad. Mm. I guess I'm just curious, like, have you, ever, have you ever been honest with him that you sort of blame yourself for the second part of his life? No, I've never told him that. 
Do you think you would want to? I do. I think so. I mean, I'm scared, shitless, but yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Jason is running out of chances to tell his dad all of the things he wants to say. So he's decided to go to St. Louis to lay it all out on the line. Oh, and I'll be there too. To me, I'm like, is he really coming? Like, what's going on? (laughs) Yeah, everything's booked. Can I just say it? It's totally gay. Meet me in St. Louis. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll meet you in St. Louis. Sounds good. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rothy's. Rothy's is the everyday flat for life on the go that comes in four fashionable styles for women. The flat, the point, the loafer, and the sneaker. Fun designs and patterns while still looking polished and professional, with new colors launched every few weeks. Best of all, Rothy's are made from recycled plastic water bottles and completely machine washable, so you can feel good about wearing them. Go to rothys.com and enter code SWITCH to get your flats and free shipping. Hi, this is Peter Sagal. For 20 years, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has been making fun of the news with comedians and celebrity guests. We got silly limericks. We got terrible impressions. If you think the news is a joke, wait till you hear our show. New podcast episodes are available every Saturday. Gene, just Gene this week, code switch. All right, I'm throwing it back to Nancy. Okay. It's the morning of, you know, the big talk and I meet up with Jason outside in the parking lot of his parents' home. I called him up the night before to see how he was feeling about everything. He said he felt like throwing up. Oh, and just because it surprises people sometimes, I'm already recording. Just so you know, it's like from the jump we're spying on you, you know? Okay, great. But today, he looks upbeat. Great. His parents live in a suburb just outside of St. Louis. They have a modest apartment in this sprawling complex. It's the kind that looks like someone hit copy-paste on like 20 of the same building. Hello. Hi. His mom meets us at the door. I brought a box of chocolates because you do not show up to a Korean household without a gift. This is for you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Jason's mom is the epitome of a good host. After making us all tea, she gives us a tour of the apartment. There's the living room with two couches and a TV, the kitchen and dining room area, and in a small hallway leading to the bedrooms. Uh, So this is supposed to be a laundry room, but this is where he has all his boxes and boxes of solution. Solution that gets pumped through his dad's kidneys every single night. It's stored in boxes stacked like Legos from floor to ceiling. We walk into the master bedroom, and it is also piled high with medical equipment. There are solutions and antiseptics in one corner, uh, an emergency kit in the other corner, a, uh, a shelf full of tubes and other medical devices, and a machine that's about the size of a medium-sized printer that functions as his kidney. There's also a bed and pictures on the wall, but it strikes me that no matter how much you try to make a place feel like home, as soon as you fill it with medical equipment like this, it starts to feel like a hospital. And as long as Jason's dad keeps refusing his son, this is their reality. Eventually, we're joined by the man himself. Jason's dad is shorter than Jason, balding, wearing sweats. 
He moves slowly as we head into the other bedroom, the one that doesn't have any medical equipment. Jason and his parents sit down on the carpeted floor, cross-legged in a circle. It feels simple and honest, like maybe they're ready to finally face each other. Um, all right, I'll let you sure. go for it. 아빠가 한국에서 태어나서 살때 기억나는 게 있어? So, what do you remember from when you were born in Korea and lived there? 뭐 어떤 거? Like what? 메모리 아무거나. Like any memory. 아, 왜 해피한 메모리 같은 거 없어? Like do you have any happy memories? I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say here. Jason is getting nowhere, so he decides to change tactics. So, when you first moved here, how was it for you, Dad? It was a lot harder than living in Korea. When I was in Korea, I didn't struggle. The business was going well, so I didn't have any big struggles. But it was hard after I came to America. So, Dad, when we moved... Why did we move? We originally didn't really have plans to move out of the country, but when you came to the U.S. on a trip and went to school, you told me that you like school in America better and wanted to go to school in America. I don't remember that at all. I don't remember articulating any sort of desires outside of food or ice cream. Back when I was eight, nine years old. But apparently, I said, that's what I said. And that planted the seed of yeah, coming here. I think so. Mm. So Jason's dad sent Jason and his mom ahead while he stayed back and sold the business. Even though you didn't want to come? Well, more so than not wanting to come or not, when I thought about it, I felt that only if we all lived together in America, our family would be happier and more comfortable. So I just came. After we moved here, and after I went to Craig Elementary School and Middle School and when I was about in high school, what did you think I would be? I was worried. <laughs> <laughs> what you worry about, Mom? Jason's mom says that as a kid, he wanted to be a doctor. But when he got to middle school, he changed his mind. He wanted to be a writer. And Jason's mom had a lot of feelings about it. You made that decision, but I thought, if you became a writer, you wouldn't make too much money, right? So I was worried about that. I wanted you to have a more reliable job. And she was pretty insistent on that, until Jason's dad intervened. 
So then, your dad told me, everyone needs to do what they love. That's how you don't end up changing jobs midlife or something like that. He said, if you love something, you'll work harder. He said the number one reason he moved to the States is so that we can let Jason do what he loves doing. So if Jason wants to do what he loves, we just need to believe in that. So from that point on, when you called, you know, I used to say to you a lot, we believe in you. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I asked her how and why she changed her mind, and she said it was because of my dad. And I didn't know that. Hmm? She's like, I'll get you some tissues. As Jason sits across from his dad, silently wiping away tears, it feels like something has cracked open. There was so much he hadn't considered about what his dad had been thinking and feeling over the years. What else had he been wrong about? So he starts bringing up his memories, the ones that felt so monumental in how he understood his relationship to his father. There was the time he had pointed out that Charlie Sheen was attractive— when he thought for sure his dad had started to be disappointed in him. Oh, you would ask questions about things like that, but I didn't really know a lot about American actors. He asked about the time his mom had gone to his dorm room and seen all the posters of the hot guys. Hadn't she told his dad? Wasn't that the moment his dad knew for sure that he was gay? Did she talk to you about it? Yeah, she didn't tell him anything, really. So if it wasn't disappointment, if it wasn't disapproval, then why had they stopped communicating? When you first went to college, after being together for high school, when you got to New York, I would always be waiting for you to call. So how did that feel when I didn't call very often? I mean, I just waited, thinking, oh, his phone must not be working, so I waited. I mean, there wasn't anything I could do, so I just waited. It's at this point that Jason realizes he has something to admit himself. It's true. His calls home were less frequent, but it wasn't because of bad cell phone service. So back then, I I wanted to call after I got to New York. I wanted to make new friends and drink alcohol, and I wanted to date men. So I was scared, Dad, to call, because I thought if I called you, you might be sad. 
were disappointed. So I was a little afraid. I never felt that way. I never felt like disappointed or anything like that. I didn't. And I just always wanted you to do what you think is right and not do what you think is not right. And I wanted you to always work hard and be better than others because second place is not first place. Whatever you decide, try hard. Always be better than others. <laughs> At this point, there was only one question left to ask. The hardest question. So, Dad, in the scenario that I gave you, the scenario where you take my kidney and have the surgery, what are you most afraid of? Well, it's what I was saying. But what are you afraid of the most? Most afraid of? I'm most afraid of you having some kind of issues later on. That I would have issues later on. I thought maybe because I had a boyfriend, you thought my kidney would be bad, would be dirty. No, I don't feel that way. I don't. But dad, people who donate kidneys, do you know that most of them are healthy? After they donate, they're healthy. Do you know that? There are a lot of people who donate their kidneys and have no issues. But still, having two kidneys versus one, there's a difference. There might be other problems because of that. So there are examples like that too. It's not non-existent. Because you get affected. Because your body will weaken. Like, you know how when my kidney functions declined, my whole body's functions declined as well. But why was it so difficult to tell me that? It can't not be difficult. You wanted to give it to me, and I didn't want to. I mean, that was difficult. You're still sick. And if I could do something about the fact that you're sick, it would be better. So what do you think I should do about this? You can't do anything about it, and I'm not going to change the mind I've already made up. I'm going to stay like this. 
my kidney is bad, so I'm sick. I understand that. I accept that. If I live a long time, it would be good for you and good for your mother. But that's just fate. How we'll live and whether I'll live a long time on dialysis, we don't know that. It's just like that. We just don't know. So I must deal with being sick for a little bit. Just like this. His dad's head began to droop. He was getting tired, and it felt like this was the place to end the conversation. Dad, please get better and live a long time. I love you. Eventually, we got up and stretched our legs, made our way to the kitchen. Jason's mom boiled water for more tea, and the mood turned lighter. His dad even laughed a little. It hadn't been the conversation Jason planned for. He hadn't expected his entire understanding of his father to fall apart and then be put back together as a kinder image than before. It made his dad's refusal of the kidney all the more difficult to accept, but somehow easier to understand. Hello? Hello, Kevin? Okay, yeah, cool. A couple weeks later, I checked in on Jason to see how he felt after talking with his dad. I think I felt very relieved, actually. And I was actually on a little bit of a high for a couple of days because we ended up talking about stuff during that interview that my dad in real life has never said before. And with the kidney stuff, it felt like even though he gave me an answer that I didn't want to hear, I was relieved to have any answer. But on the other hand, I feel so burdened watching him physically deteriorate as I live on the incredible grace, really, of a sacrifice is tough to take for me. Yeah. Is there any part of you that's like, that now is like, oh, of course, of course it was about protecting me? There is. After he said it, I thought, oh, yes, the ultimate sacrifice is making sure that I stay healthy and making sure that your family is okay before yourself. Yeah. What do you think it was that sort of made you overlook that as an option? I think that when people stop communicating, your mind goes at first 20 miles an hour and then 50 miles an hour and then eventually 100 and 1,000 miles an hour. And for me, in the years where I wasn't really opening up to my dad and he wasn't really opening up to me, my mind was racing as fast as possible. Mm. I mean, is there still a part of you that thinks you can convince him to take your kidney? Yeah, the selfish part. 
now that we finally arrived at a place where he said the things that I want to hear and I have been more open with him, I'm thinking, oh man, our life can really begin now. Our relationship as two grown adults can start because I want to hear everything he has to say. One more thing. Recently, there was a change in his father's health. Hi, Jason. This is the kidney transplant office calling. A couple months after we talked in St. Louis, Jason got a voice message from the hospital about his dad. Jason manages his father's care now, so he was the first one they called with the news. Uh, We are trying to call your father in for a kidney transplant. A donor had appeared, and they were a match. I need you to call me back uh, right away at 8-12. Because of confidentiality rules, the family couldn't know who the donor was. But Jason's dad said yes. All right, y'all, that's our show. The translations in this episode were voiced by Sanjay Kim, James Saito, and Theodora Kuzlin. Special thanks also to Jeff Spurgeon and James Kim. This episode was produced by Matt Collette, and Jeremy Bloom was the sound designer. Paula Schumann is the executive producer of Nancy. And of course, shout out to Kathy Two and Tobin Lowe. Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. This is a reminder to support your local public radio member station, by the way. Shout out to the rest of the Coast Ridge team, as always. We'll be back on Thursday of next week, a day later than normal. That's because of the Martin Luther King holiday. We're going to have an episode on the newest developments in a story that could literally shape American democracy for decades to come. We're checking in again on the fight over the U.S. Census. I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. In the Trump era, the news moves faster than ever. And the NPR Politics Podcast is there to keep you informed. Every time there's a major political story, we get our best correspondents together to sort through the noise. The NPR Politics Podcast, what you need to know right after it happens.